Um, my next uh, task this morning, this afternoon, is to introduce Dr. Melanie Thompson, who is our next speaker. She will be speaking on HIV and aging. Dr. Thompson has conducted over 400 studies in the areas of HIV treatment prevention and diagnostics. She was the principal investigator of the AIDS Research Consortium of Atlanta and has cared for thousands of people with HIV, is well known around the Southeast and the world for her expertise in clinical care and clinical investigation. She currently chairs the HIVMA HIV Primary Care Guidance Panel and serves on the U.S. DHHS Antiretroviral Guidelines Panel and our IASUSA uh, Antiretroviral Therapy Guidelines Panel which she also chaired for us in 2010 and 2012. She is a member of the Georgia Department of Public Health's HIV Medical Advisory Committee and its Legal and Ethical Committee, and it serves as the executive editor of the Strategy to End AIDS in Fulton County from 2015 to 2017, and the advisor, chaired the Advisory Committee for Prevention, Care, and Policy in 2019 and 2020. Her passion is to contribute to the end of the HIV epidemic through patient-centered medical care, prevention and treatment research, and evidence-based guidelines and policies. So welcome, and she'll be talking with us about HIV and aging. Thank you, Connie. <clears throat> with that lovely introduction. Um, seems like I'm a little hoarse. Oops, I'm sorry. Um, so uh, <clears throat> I thought this was a good title for this talk. Um, here are my disclosures. Uh, we're going to go through um, some uh, objectives having to do with um, HIV-specific risk enhancers for cardiovascular disease. Uh, we're going to talk a little about frailty, and we're going to talk about polypharmacy. But the reason I wanted to title this talk um, after something that a patient said to me in 2005 is that, um, first of all, I've never forgotten it. It just sticks in my head, and I moisturize more because of this, I'm sure. But it turns out that aging is about more than just getting wrinkles, and the good thing is that people with HIV, as we all know, are living longer and they're almost catching up with people without HIV, but not without comorbidities. And it turns out that people with HIV accumulate comorbidities uh, nine and a half years or so faster than people without HIV. <clears throat> this is even more so for women and women have a higher prevalence, and they accumulate comorbidities earlier uh, than men, and even for the younger women. So women under the age of 25 are accumulating comorbidities. So it turns out that aging with HIV is complicated. Now, we've heard a lot about inflammation over the years, and we know inflammation is important uh, and is linked to mortality, even in people with HIV with suppressed viral load. But inflammation is really just one part of this picture of, of all the things that happen to us as we age. And there is now a science called geroscience, which really looks at the totality of aging 
And their hypotheses really are that there are these basic aging mechanisms that drive multiple disease outcomes. And so when you look at the biological drivers of aging, <clears throat> there are many, many components, inflammation, chromosome maintenance, DNA repair, um, you know, all of the things that happen that push us along to age. And it turns out they don't cause like one disease. They cause an array of diseases. And so uh, this is a model that was presented in Montreal this year by Monty Montano, looking at the homeostatic balance that is disrupted because of these gero drivers of aging. And that includes inflammation, but all sorts of other things, senescence of cells and stem cell dysfunction. And what we really want is to have gero protectors that will work on the other side of the equation and sort of keep this from happening and keep it from happening for people with HIV faster than for people without HIV. Unfortunately, we don't really have any interventions for most of these drivers yet. So what we are left to do is um, make the best with what we can do right now. And so that brings us to comorbidities. This is an analysis that was done using the OptumRx database of diagnoses and medications. And that database looked at people with and without HIV. And this analysis looks at decades of age. So people with HIV are in purple, without HIV are in blue. And I've highlighted here multimorbidity and polypharmacy. And we'll talk about polypharmacy later, but polypharmacy sort of uh, tracks right along with multimorbidity. It goes up for every decade of age. And then it turns out that there are other comorbidities, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, that also go up with every decade of age. And so does cardiovascular disease. And we all recognize these as risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And so I wanted to focus on cardiovascular disease uh, at the beginning here. Um, there's a really important AHA scientific statement about cardiovascular disease in people with HIV. And I would recommend that you read that. It's from 2019. It's a good read. Um, teaches some things about pathology also. Uh, but they recognize that people with HIV have an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And in fact, that risk is increased by one and a half to twofold. Uh, for myocardial infarction and strokes and heart failure, as well as some other cardiovascular events. And the importance of this statement is that they called out these HIV-specific risk-enhancing factors. And so people with HIV may have a variety of things that enhance their risk for cardiovascular disease. And that would include any history of prolonged viremia, whether you didn't get started on medicines early enough, whether there was uh, treatment failure or non-adherence. And this is true even if the current viral load is suppressed. Also, a low CD4 count at any time in the past, less than 350. Metabolic syndrome, lipodystrophy, fatty liver disease, and hepatitis C co-infection. 
And if any of these are present, you actually want to increase your risk factor adjusted upward by one and a half to twofold. Uh, there's a recent United States Public uh, Preventive Services Task Force report on statins that just came out this month. And this is uh, sort of the bottom line guidance for people without known cardiovascular disease or very high LDL. And so if you are between 40 and 75 and you have one or more risk factors, the risk factors being hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and smoking, smoking is very important, um, then you want to selectively offer or offer um, a statin to people if they have a pooled risk equation score of seven and a half or higher. And the higher it gets, the more they are likely to benefit from a statin. Uh, in people who are 76 years old or older, then the evidence is a little equivocal about benefit and risk. So that's a conversation to be had. But remember these HIV risk-enhancing factors, because that would really up the ante here by one and a half to twofold. Um, by the way, this report found no difference between statins and placebo for these common muscle pains and muscle disorders, liver enzyme elevation, uh, or cancers associated um, with either statin or placebo. And I, I think that's important. So in terms of management, uh, we want to manage the lipids, but we also want to manage the lifestyle as best we can. We need to talk with our patients about smoking. That's such an important component of all of this. Um, for lipid-lowering therapy, they recommend the three common statins uh, that are listed here. And they recommend to start low and go slow. And so you can back off if people are having side effects um, or if if they're uh, having drug interactions, you, you really should sort of scope this out in advance. If they're on cobicistat or ritonavir, you want to use a very low dose uh, because those will boost the levels of these statins and you could have side effects. And then if there aren't any, if you don't get a good response um, or if there's intolerance, that's when they say we could move on to other agents. And so in terms of cardiovascular disease, we want to screen and intervene. Uh, we've screened for and managed the modifiable risk factors like smoking, hypertension, uh, and so on. And then in terms of tools for screening, BMI is a very important tool for screening. Um, it is associated with increased risk of a lot of other things, hypertension, dyslipidemia, uh, fatty liver disease. And waist circumference is a very simple measure, but very powerful. And I have copied a chart here from a consensus statement about visceral obesity that actually um, stratifies the waist circumference by gender, but also by the BMI category. And then there's coronary artery calcium score screening. So we know that the coronary artery calcium score is associated with risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, and this um, uh, analysis on the right, excuse me, <clears throat> was presented at CROI this year. And it shows that people with HIV have higher CAC scores than people without HIV, uh, when, even when they're matched for age. So uh, the only caveat here is that people with HIV also can have non-calcified plaque, and this picks up only calcified plaque. 
So what about that weight gain thing? So you heard Roger this morning uh, talk about weight gain, and uh, I think Mike showed um, a slide from uh, the NA Accord study. Well, uh, at the Montreal conference, uh, Andrew Hill and his group presented an update from the advanced study, and that compared dolutegravir FTC TAF with dolutegravir TDF and FTC and Favarin's FTC TDF. And it turns out, of course, that uh, as we're beginning to recognize, there is more weight gain with dolutegravir TAF and FTC than with the other compounds. And this was particularly pronounced in women compared to men, and women continued to gain weight over time. And so they looked at predictors of obesity, and in addition to the antiretroviral uh, and female gender, the baseline BMI actually predicted more weight gain. So a higher BMI meant that people were going to gain more weight, and a high baseline viral load also was predictive of increased weight. But this is what I thought was interesting, because there's been a debate about well, you know, if this is all return to health and so on, maybe it's not that important. But it turns out that this weight gain was statistically significantly higher for TAF-FTC uh, dolutegravir um, for all of these patients and associated with metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome, here's the definition from the International Diabetes Federation, Metabolic syndrome is associated with high triglycerides, um, high blood pressure, high fasting glucose, and a reduced HDL cholesterol. So this weight gain actually is translating into something that we know is correlated with bad outcomes. And so what can we do about this? Well, I thought this was a very interesting study that was presented at ID Week last year from the University of Colorado. It turns out if you look at weight gain for people who are put on their new antiretrovirals, the weight gain over the first two months is predictive of the people who are going to have excessive weight gain at two years. And so ideally, what we really want to do is pick this up early respond to it early. Uh, and, and by respond, I don't necessarily mean changing their antiretrovirals because we right now don't have any data to suggest that that is the thing to do. But I think it means that we can counsel people. We can help them mitigate that weight gain by, by paying more attention to it and giving them resources. So in terms of these common comorbidities, Really, what we want to provide is good primary care. We want to be sure people are vaccinated for COVID as well as monkeypox, if appropriate, um, for all the other vaccine-preventable diseases. We want to screen for liver disease, um, including fatty liver disease. We want to assess for bone density uh, in people who are at risk for low bone density and then address whatever modifiable risk factors we can address for osteopenia or osteoporosis. We want to screen for cancers, um, screen for STIs. And I want to mention screening for depression and for substance use because this is something that we don't do often enough. It's not that hard, but it just takes a little time. But it turns out 
that if you ask two questions about depression, you actually can get paid for it. So it is reimbursable. And it, the um, PHQ-2 is a very powerful um, screener for depression. So let's move to frailty. Frailty is something that we're talking about more and more as our patients age. And we think about frailty as this sort of staccato downward movement from a robust health to even death. And it turns out, though, that it doesn't have to be that way. And also, it can go in the other direction. So it's very important to recognize frailty early on, and we can intervene and sometimes turn that around. It turns out also that frailty does occur more frequently and earlier in people with HIV. And over half of people with HIV at the very young age, at least from my perspective, of 45 or 50, um, over half of people with HIV are frail or pre-frail. And that's quite remarkable when you think about it, because we see people who, you know, don't look that old, and yet they have significant um, morbidity. We often think of frailty as the endpoint of all of these accumulated comorbidities, but frailty actually is an independent risk factor for the development of cardiovascular disease, development of diabetes, and in some cases, bone disease for people with HIV. So let's go through a couple of tools for frailty assessment. Okay, I know, nobody has time for more screening. I also want to say, and I'll channel Judy Courier and Jules Levin by saying that it's the system that isn't built right. It's not you. I know that we all want to do all the screening and we don't have enough time. And so here's an advocacy point that we need to build health systems that are capable of taking care of people with HIV as they age and maybe the rest of us as we age as well. So this is kind of the classic tool for um, measuring frailty. It uh, was created in 2001 by Linda Freed, and it depends on five indicators, weight loss, self-reported exhaustion, low energy expenditure, slow gait speed, and then weak grip strength. And this is a very powerful indicator, but it turns out you have to have a dynamometer to do that grip strength thing. Now, it's a great tool, but it can be a little pricey and you have to get it calibrated every year. So maybe there are things that would be simpler. And this is actually one of the simplest tests for frailty that I have seen. It's called the Clinical Frailty Scale. It was created by the Canadians and validated. And it turns out that this is a clinical judgment tool. So it doesn't require um, dynamometers or labs, and it doesn't require doing all sorts of interventions in your office, but it requires your clinical judgment. And it, it turns out that looking at people, observing their habits, understanding what their symptoms are and how much their symptoms are interfering with their life can be a powerful tool for identifying pre-frailty. Because people will say things like, hey, I think I'm just slowing down or I'm really tired in the daytime. I mean, these are kind of vague things, but if you probe a little more, it may well be that they are becoming symptomatic and they're becoming frail. 
Here's another tool that I happen to like. It's the short physical performance battery. It entails three physical tasks, but they're not that hard. Um, Timed standing from a chair five times, uh, a three or four meter walk, which is timed, and then three balance tests, which um, you do for 10 seconds each. So both feet, tandem, semi-tandem, and so on. And then you score this. And a low score actually correlates with death. It's very simple to do. And you'd be surprised sometimes that the people you think could do this really don't do that well. And then if you like numbers, there is the Veterans Aging Cohort Study Index. And this is actually quite handy because it is mostly labs and other things that you can find in your electronic medical record. So you don't have to make the patient do something when you are sitting there in the office, but it actually um, is is very uh, powerful in terms of predicting mortality in people with HIV. And there is an online calculator at mdcalc.com that will help you do this. So let's talk about polypharmacy just a little bit. What is it? Why is it bad? Well, what it is, is five or more drugs and hyperpolypharmacy we talk about as 10 or more drugs. And it's really driven by multimorbidity, but it can also cause morbidity. So polypharmacy is associated with bad side effects of drugs, drug interactions, inappropriate medications that people of a certain age shouldn't be on, Um, prescribing cascades. That's when we prescribe one drug to take care of the side effects of another drug. And then um, we all know that people miss doses when they're taking too many drugs, or sometimes they miss their refills, and it's always associated with increased cost. So how do we manage that? Well, we go through the drug list at every visit. Sorry, that's, you know, it's a hard thing to do, but if you can't do it at every single visit, especially do it after hospitalizations, after consults with other doctors, because, you know, it's those other doctors who are the culprits in prescribing all these other medicines. So you, but it is hard to keep up when people are seeing multiple specialists. We want to look for new or unnecessary drugs, including over-the-counter drugs, the wrong dose or the wrong duration of drugs, these prescribing cascades, drugs that have overlapping toxicities or whose toxicities overlap with disease um, manifestations, and and then those with intrinsic toxicities like anticholinergics and sedatives. And then, of course, the drug-drug interactions. And my mantra is, don't guess, look it up. Some of them are very, very tricky. Remember that alcohol, recreational drugs, uh, and OTC uh, drugs and supplements are part of all this. So you have to ask about what they're taking that maybe you didn't prescribe. There are some helpful tools, and they're referenced on this slide, the start and stop criteria, the beers criteria, which uh, the gerontologist created to um, give us guidance about inappropriate medications. And The HIV drug interaction website of the University of Liverpool is on my speed dial, and hopefully it's on yours too. And it should be on your speed dial for things like this. So this is a list of the contraindicated drugs with ritonavir. Cobicisset would be very similar. Don't try to memorize these things. Look it up. And it's really important when it comes 
to COVID because here is Paxlovid that includes ritonavir. And that's why I picked ritonavir instead of cobacistat. Some people aren't accustomed to using ritonavir. People who don't see people with HIV don't know about ritonavir. But there are huge numbers of Paxlovid interactions, but they can be managed. But importantly, you should look them up. And you can look at the HIV drug interaction website or at the COVID-19 drug interaction website, also University of Liverpool. And the University of Waterloo has a terrific drug interaction website also. Now, I want to speak for one second about anticholinergic drugs. This is an analysis from the Poppy cohort of older people in the UK. Uh, it was presented at Croy this year. It is largely male and largely white, so those are limitations of this cohort. But in this cohort, 9% of people reported recurrent falls. And 32% of this cohort, people older than 50 years old or older, 32% met frailty criteria. And the most commonly prescribed anticholinergic medications include some things that we don't always think of as anticholinergic, like antidepressants and antihistamines. And the analysis of this database showed that these medications are associated with recurrent falls and frailty, especially if you're giving two or more anticholinergics. So this is something to really look for, spend a minute thinking about those drugs and whether they have intrinsic properties that could cause our patients to fall. And in terms of preventing falls, this is a great resource. It's from CDC. It's the STEADY algorithm. And the STEADY algorithm helps you to screen and assess and intervene uh, for people 65 years and older. And it's really based on three simple questions. So do you feel unsteady when you're standing or walking? Are you worried about falling? Or have you fallen in the past year? And if any of these answers are yes, then it gives you uh, an algorithm for actually assessing uh, and then intervening, because the point of all this is to intervene and to keep people from falling. I thought it was very interesting in looking at physical exercise. Obviously, being stronger is better, but only balance exercises increase your postural control. So postural control helps to keep us from falling, but you don't get it from running and you don't get it from lifting weights the same way that you get it from balance exercises. So even simple balance exercises can really help people maintain their agility and prevent falls. And it turns out I discovered that my iPhone is tracking my walking steadiness all the time. And if I want it to, I can ask it to notify me if I'm not doing so well. If I'm at elevated risk for a fall in the next 12 months, my iPhone will tell me that. And so it's measuring my step length, my walking speed, my double support time. That's the time I spend on two feet instead of one foot. And my walking asymmetry, 0%, pretty good. And it also gives me exercises that I can do 
to improve my walking steadiness. And, you know, I think when we think about all these things for our patients, we think about all the stuff we have to do for them. We get a little overwhelmed. But the truth is people want to be well. People don't want to fall. They don't want to have morbidities. And there are some things that people can be motivated to do for themselves. And so I think little tricks like this are kind of fun because uh, it, it gives people a chance to be active in their own health. So the principles of frailty prevention and intervention include minimizing all of these aggregating factors keeping people in routine health care. And this has been so difficult during COVID. So many people have dropped out of routine health care. They're not getting their colonoscopies. They may get their antiretrovirals, but they're not getting their antidepressants. So there are a lot of things that are falling through the cracks. So we want to do the routine screening that we need to do. We want to screen for these comorbidities to try to prevent them and turn them around early if we can. Um, address polypharmacy, address the potential for falling, and also to increase the factors that actually promote health and resiliency. And that includes physical activity, maybe some balance exercises, and social interaction. It turns out lack of social interaction actually is associated with death. And so the isolation that we have all felt during the pandemic is particularly potent for people who are older and particularly people who are HIV positive who are older. And so social isolation and helping people think of ways to increase that can really be very potent. So what, what I would like to encourage you to do is at least think about frailty as part of the assessment and also advocate for our patients and our health system so that we can build health systems that actually allow us to do what we need to do to keep these patients healthy and whole. Frank Howard Clark, who's a screenwriter, said that we've put more effort into helping folks reach old age than into helping them enjoy it. And I think that rings truer and truer as time goes on. And, and, but I do think that we can do something about this. And so um, I thank you for listening today and happy to try to take a question or two. So that was a spectacular session. So thank you very much, Melanie. We have a number of questions okay. so stimulated some interest. So let's start with the first one. Are there any ongoing studies of the use of metformin as prophylactic therapy to reduce inflammation in patients with HIV? There are some ongoing studies um, and we don't have any results yet, but I'll also want to tell you about another ongoing study um, which is the Reprieve study, and that is looking at statin therapy for people who don't necessarily meet the criteria for statins. And part of the rationale for that study is also the idea that statins reduce inflammation. And so 
can we have better outcomes um, if people are taking a statin before they meet the current criteria for needing it, people with HIV? And can we reduce cardiovascular and perhaps other outcomes? So I think that study is a very large international trial that uh, probably will be coming to analysis in the next year or two, you think? Do you know? I I hope so. This is what we're hearing. It's, it's still it's, ongoing. It's but still ongoing, but we we hear various things. Yes. I'll say that. We're, ho- we're hopeful. We're hopeful. Um, so, so, and I think metformin is interesting and, and not being studied in the same broad way that um, the statins are being studied. And uh, tavastatin is the statin being studied in the reprieve trial. Great. Um, are there any concrete guidelines on the ASCVD calculator for people with HIV other than just saying HIV increases risks by 1.5 to two fold? Yeah, that's kind of kind of discouraging, isn't it? That uh, you know we do all this pooled cohort equation stuff, and we really we don't have a simple table to tell us what to do for people with HIV. In fact, I think it becomes a little murkier for people without HIV as well as time goes on. Um, So I think it's important to take into account other things as well. For example, race. For example, where people live. Um, The South is the epicenter for hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, all bad things. Um, and there are reasons for that, but I won't get on that soapbox right this minute. But nonetheless, I think you have to look at your patient's total risk. And there actually is a study in a Medicare population that says we should, that, that these folks have a threefold increase in risk. So I think it's not quite as simple as saying, okay, um, CD4 count of 150 a number of years ago equals 1.5 increase in risk. But I do think it's a conversation with patients. I think it is, it's that art of medicine stuff that takes a lot more time um, than looking things up in a, in a chart. So I think we, I am, I tend to be pretty aggressive in terms of starting statins with patients. And I'll tell you, I use the coronary artery calcium score pretty often, and I have found some really surprising results in that um, people who really don't have a huge number of risk factors and their calcium score is 1,200. And then you really have an intervention you can do to help these people. So uh, I wish I had a better answer, but I think it is a combination of being aware of increased risk, Um, multiplying the score by one and a half or two, or maybe even three, and then taking into account all the other things that play into your patient's risk. Um, Aspirin for primary prevention of coronary artery disease has fallen out of favor, but what about those with a 10-year risk greater than 20? And what about women? What are your thoughts on aspirin? We have no guidance for people with HIV that is different from the general guidance. And, you know, I do think we know that as people get older, then the risks of aspirin begin to counterbalance the benefits of aspirin. Um, Certainly, this is also something that a coronary artery calcium score helps me with because people have sub, um, they, they have occult coronary artery disease 
Uh, and sometimes you will find that out on a coronary artery calcium score. And then those people have coronary artery disease and they should be on aspirin. That's not primary prevention. That's actually finding subacute disease. So in terms of primary prevention, I, I think you really do have to um, take all of those risk factors into account, particularly the risk of, of GI bleeding, the risk of falling, having, um, having bleeds. And it has fallen somewhat out of favor because the data really haven't borne out uh, what we had hoped, uh, which is that aspirin would be a magic bullet for preventing heart, heart disease or heart attacks, rather. Well, I'm judicious in the way I use aspirin. Great. Uh... One last question about primary prevention of coronary artery disease. In people with HIV, is the goal LDL less than 100? And if not at goal and maxed out on statin therapy, do you add ezetimibe or another drug? What if the risk is greater than 20%? Kind of a multifactorial question there. (laughs) See if you can remember all the questions embedded in there. That's that's the first mental status exam for me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I do add additional drugs. Um, I keep in mind that, you know, you want the LDL to be below 100, but a lot of people have other risk factors and you might even want it to be below 70 for some people. And and so I do add other drugs. Um, I, uh, I also... I I don't go gung-ho into the uh, newer, more expensive drugs very much because we actually have had some trouble getting um, reimbursement for patients on on some of those compounds. But I will try um, uh, things like uh, estimibi. I will try Questran, um, a bile acid sequestrant. Um, I, I like to work with people on their diets as much as possible, because I do think people can sometimes make changes in their diets that will make a big difference. Um, but I, and I am not shy about putting on a, people on a maximum dose of a statin. And even if they are on um, a PK enhancer like cobicistat or ritonavir, and you start at a low level, really what you're monitoring for are side effects. And so you can often go up fairly high with a statin if the person is not having side effects. So I tend to be pretty aggressive. Um, you know, people with diabetes, you really want to get their, uh, their LDL down below 70 or some would say below 55. So, uh, and, and when you start getting to that kind of bar, then I think we are going to be taking a step up into some of the newer agents um, that are uh, going to be more expensive and, and um, maybe cause us a little more uh, difficulty in terms of trying to get them approved for our patients. Well, I think that's all the time for questions we have today. So if you didn't get something answered that I missed, please feel free to talk with Dr. Thompson after the break. 